This sermon was preached at University Park Baptist Church in Houston, Texas. For more information about UPBC, visit upbchouston.org. We're going to look together at Luke 9, beginning in verse 10, and I'll read down to verse 17. Luke 9, beginning in verse 10. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came to him and said, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, you give them something to eat. They said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we were to go and buy food for all these people. For they were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to send before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, 12 baskets of broken pieces. Let's pray. Lord, here we are now. with empty hands and a desire to be fed from you, from heaven. And so we pray that you would feed us, that we would feast on you, that we would see you high and lifted up. We would see you, Jesus, as the great provider, the bread of life. And Lord, we pray that we would feast And that we would look forward to the great feast, the eternal feast that we will enjoy with you. And so, Lord, we pray that you would work now by the power of your spirit through your word in your people to glorify your name. Do, Lord, what I cannot do. Do more than we would ask or imagine. We ask it in your powerful, precious name, in the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. Well, as we enter back into our study of Luke's gospel, the question of Herod the Tetrarch looms over the passage. If you remember, Herod had heard reports about Jesus and uh, likely the ministry that had been going on from the apostles They were preaching and healing in the villages of Galilee. And and we know Herod's interest in Jesus from looking at the whole gospel and other gospels was essentially superficial. But Luke intends for each of us to come face to face with his question. And that's why he reminds us of that question in various ways over and over throughout the gospel. The question comes in many forms, but it's, but who is this about whom I hear such things? Who is this? For some in this room, you're going to ask that question in the context of salvation. 
Who is this that says I need to be saved? Who is this that says he can save me? Who are these people gathered together in this church? What are their lives really like? Some of you are going to ask that question as it relates to ministry, the context of ministry. What is the heart of ministering the gospel? What is the heart of my ministry uh, to Jesus? How does that look? Because I know my own abilities, I know my own ideas and my own strength. And often I know discouragement. Robert Morrison was a missionary to China in 1805. He was faced with this question. He was recruited by the London Missionary Society to go to China, but he couldn't secure passage. He had to go to the U.S. to find a boat that would take him over. He was able to find a ship, made his way onto the ship, but the captain was, learned about his mission and was skeptical. He said, Mr. Morrison, do you really expect that you will make an impression on the idolatry of the great Chinese empire? Some of you, like me, can feel the weight of that question. What can you really do? What, what impact are you really having on your family, on, on this community? What, what impact can our, what can our church really do? Morrison replied, no, sir, I don't expect that I will. But I expect that God will. I expect that God will make an impact. And he did. For some of you, this question about who Jesus is comes in the context of provision. Uh, I have a big need. I come today uh, distracted by the needs in my life. I'm in trouble. I don't, I don't see the way out of this particular situation that I'm in, and I'm wondering if God will provide. I think of the, the, the Israelites in the wilderness who had been delivered from slavery in Egypt by God's miraculous power, and yet they wondered, would God feed them and provide for them in the wilderness? Would he sustain them? So they were delivered, and yet they were still doubting. Psalm 78 captures this well. Psalm 78, verse 18, And they tested God in their heart by demanding the food they craved. They spoke against God, saying, Can God spread a table in the wilderness? We should remember that question. He, he struck the rock so that water gushed out and streams overflowed. Can he also give bread to provide meat or provide meat for his people? So we can overlay these questions. We can overlay that passage, I think, on our passage here from Luke 9. As Jesus and his 12 disciples are in a desolate, wilderness-like place, there's an overwhelming crowd that's hungry and needs provision. But there's a wrinkle here. Jesus looks at his disciples and says, you give them something to eat. How could he expect them to feed this crowd? They had seen Jesus' power, his authority over sickness and disease and nature, even death. But how could they feed the crowd? Or would they look to him to show his power again? Do we look to him like that? It all depends on how we answer Herod's question. Who is this? Who is Jesus? This account of Jesus feeding the 5,000 appears in all four Gospels. So it's the only miracle apart from the resurrection that appears in all four Gospels. And so I think that should tell us something about its importance. Why we should, we should pay attention to it and learn what we need to learn about who Jesus is from it. 
No matter where we find ourselves this morning, whether it's questions about salvation, looking for direction and encouragement in your life and ministry, needing provision, or maybe you're just acknowledging that my life is pretty bland. It's pretty boring. It's not as much as I thought it would be. It's coming up short. You're not finding real satisfaction. Jesus stands before us as our great Savior and supplier, provider and satisfier. So may we look to him together now and forevermore. I'll just give you three summary words that will kind of summarize the outline of our passage. If you're taking notes, first we're going to see God's providence in the setting of the miracle. We see that in verses 10 and 11. His providence in just the way this unfolds. Secondly, the, there's a problem evident that we'll see in verses 12 to 13, that people need to eat. At least that on the face, that's the problem. And then finally, the provision that Jesus makes in verses 14 to 16. Providence, problem, and provision. Uh, I'm, I'm praying that we would, we would see and believe Philippians 4, 19 all the more this morning as we look at this passage. This is, this is Paul's prayer. And my, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. He will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. May we see Jesus as our satisfying, all-sufficient Savior. Let's look together first at the providential setting of the world's most famous picnic. So number one, providence. And I use that word is because I just think we here we see an example of God's timing and orchestration of events always being the best case scenario. God's timing of events, his orchestration, always being the best case scenario. On the surface, it probably wouldn't have seemed that way to the disciples. They had just returned from a short-term mission trip, so to speak. They're eager to tell Jesus and to share all that God did in their time. And they're also exhausted, likely, and, and ready to, to rest. And so we, we pick it up there in verse 10 again. Uh, upon their return, on their return, the apostles told him all that they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. So remember, on that trip, Jesus had given them this sort of special authority over sickness and the demonic realm to preach the kingdom of God. We see that in chapter 9, early verses 1 and 2. So they must have had some amazing stories about what God did, the way that God provided Right, that's, that's the object lesson that he had provided for them um, uh, while they were away on their trip. Remember, they had taken nothing with them in terms of supplies. Chapter 9, verse 3. They weren't to take um, all these extra things that you would normally take on a trip so that God would be shown to be faithful. God would be their provision. So they're, they're giving those testimonies. They're sharing how God had done that. Must have been the first time any of them had preached. Hey, first sermon. How did it go? How did God help you? How did, were people helped when they sort of repeated and said some of the words that they had heard Jesus say? And Jesus then says, we're going to get away together and we're going to take time and rest and retreat. And he takes them to Bethsaida, which we're told is this remote, desolate place uh, not too far away. Mark gives us a little bit more uh, background in chapter 6. He says, for many were coming and going. They did not even have leisure enough time to eat. So they're very busy, they're, they're exhausted, they've got all these things to share, they needed rest, but that's not the way things are going to go. There's going to be a change of plan. 
And you see it there in verse 11. When the crowds learned it, they followed him. And he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. So they were followed. The crowds picked up on the plan. They're going to go rest. They're going to try to get away. We're going to follow. And so instead of a time of physical rest and reflection, now they're inundated with thousands of people who are needy, clamoring to Jesus, wanting him to talk to them, wanting him to heal them. So attitude check time, right? How would you respond when, when, if you're in their shoes, when your, your plans are interrupted? And listen, good plans. Time to get away with Jesus, to rest from ministry. How's your attitude like when those things get snatched away and changed? And so we don't know. We're not going to impute their attitude. I'll just tell you my attitude wouldn't be very good. It isn't very good often. When I have a plan of things I want to do and they don't happen, but they're, they're in that moment looking to Jesus and seeing him welcome the crowd, seeing him speak to them about the kingdom of God, cure those who had need of healing. That's just kind of a, almost a throwaway line. We won't spend a whole lot of time on that. We've been studying that in Luke's gospel. Jesus having authority over disease and death and all these things. Luke's just kind of a throwaway line. He's healing. He's, he's preaching. The kingdom of God is here. And so they're, they're seeing their master and example and king model for them this compassion. It's on display. And this trust in the Father's timing and the Father's providence in his life. So Jesus is submitting himself totally to the Father. That includes the Father's calendar of events. He embraces God's design for this moment. And he sees the opportunity to minister in it, not begrudgingly, but with joy. He welcomes it. And so just let that be a, a time of observation and just a, uh, an instructive moment for you as you look at Jesus here. God had something better for the, the disciples than this time of rest away from the people. That seems to be the most logical, best thing. But when Jesus sees this plan kind of change, he welcomes and embraces it. Not because he doesn't want the rest, but because he believes Psalm 84, 11. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. You take that verse and filter it through your life and, you, and through the providence of God in your life and you know that if, if God, if I'm, if I'm righteous in Christ and God is a good father, then, then he's not going to uphold the good from me. So even if I find myself in a strange, inconvenient providence, God must have something better. This must be the best thing for me in this time. And of course, that is true in this story. The disciples are about to get a lesson in what it truly means to rest in Christ. It's one thing to rest from work, to rest from peopling. But another thing altogether to rest in Christ, to be refreshed and renewed, to be fed by the good shepherd. So, beloved, a lesson here. Trust. Trust in God's timing, in the Lord's timing. If things don't go as you have planned, learn from Jesus, minister in the moment that you're given. And more often than not, those interruptions turn out to prove to be some of the clearest displays of God's power in our lives. And this is no exception. So apart from the ministry that Jesus engages in here, there's a 
a problem that arises. And that's what we see next. Number two, the problem. The problem. Most scholars believe that this this is taking place in the springtime. John mentions that it's Passover. One of the gospel authors mentions, you know, they're sitting down on grass, so the grass is, is growing. So imagine this spring afternoon. It's passing by. The shadows are beginning to lengthen. And the disciples are beginning to realize that, okay, we got to do something about this. They're, they're probably looking out for Jesus. They're, they're looking out for the people and the needs of those that have come. They're, they're hungry. They need um, help. And so they make the suggestion there in verse 12. Now the day began to wear on, and the twelve came and said to him, send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages in the countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. Again, out in the middle of nowhere, so people have come likely very unprepared to come a long way to see Jesus, but now they're starting to get hungry, and you know that includes the disciples. They're not only hungry, they're tired, hangry. So they suggest, maybe it seems a little bit more like a command, hey Jesus, go do this, send everyone away to get food or go back to their homes. Uh, so we can get back to our retreat. That's what we intended for this whole time. This has been great and all, hearing you preach and seeing you do these miracles, good preaching, but it's time to send them away so we can have that break that we were supposed to have. So that is the problem the disciples see, but Jesus is going to introduce, I think, the real problem in the next verse. Verse 13, But he said to them, You, and that you is emphatic, you give them something to eat. And he said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we were to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. You give them something to eat, Jesus says. So when they're processing that, we get a glimpse into their thought process, don't we? Um, On the grid, if they put this, okay, how could we do that? How could we give them something to eat? Option one. We could divide up what we have and pass it out. So we've got this, you know, these five loaves and two fish. John says that wasn't even theirs. It was loaned, it was given to them by a boy, right? And we could just sort of dice that up into microscopic squares. So it's going to be more like crumbs and pass those out to these thousands of people. Okay, that's, that's probably not going to work. Option two, we could go down and buy food. Uh, John is helpful here. Philip actually says 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. That would be seven to eight months wages. Still not enough. So 5,000 men, verse 14, you've probably seen this and thought about this in the other Gospels, likely translates maybe to somewhere between 10 and as many as 20,000 people. When you add in women and children. You ever been to an Aggie baseball game, Olsen Field? I'm thinking about spring, baseball, Aggies. Olsen Field holds about 6,000 people. You get a feel for that. They're all hungry. You have a McDonald's Happy Meal. Jesus says, feed them. Feed them. And not just give them a crumb, but they, they want to eat. So what is Jesus doing by saying, you give them something to eat? at least he's highlighting their inability for the task, right? He's highlighting their inability. 
I don't think he's doing that to discourage them. We know the verse well, don't we? When Paul over and over and over prayed that the Lord would remove that thorn in the flesh, remove that trial in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, but he said to to me, Jesus to, to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. The weaker I am, the more I rely on Christ, the more his power resides in me. Beloved, don't we sometimes act in our lives as though God doesn't even exist? In our thought process, in decisions that we make, problem solving, as if there is no God. We're faced with a problem, and there's a spectrum of problems, um, but we evaluate our resources, we look at our available time, we think about what would be a reasonable decision, we make that decision, and we move on totally apart from God. We think in terms of what we have on hand. And that sets the parameters. That sets the boundaries of what could be possible. But this passage teaches us that our resources will never get the job done. Our resources are not sufficient. It does not enter into the disciples' minds that Jesus has the power to feed this many people. And so before we chide them for forgetting that Jesus had had calmed the storm with a word and raised the dead, what about us? When you think about the, the people of the world without access to the gospel, how do you think about that problem? How do you think about that problem getting solved, in a sense? When you think about our neighbors or your neighbors that seem just uninterested in a relationship, uninterested in church, uninterested in the gospel. How do you approach that problem? With a wayward child. When you think about the needs of our community, when you think about the poor and the homeless, you think about the reality of addiction, of so many that don't know Jesus. If you think about planting a ministry here, planting the gospel here that would endure for generations and generations to come. What are the limits? What are the parameters that you put on those prayers and thoughts? What's the ceiling on those dreams? This problem lives in us. It lives in me. It's alive and well. And so may we repent. May we repent of of treating the church, treating our life in some transactional way. Operating our lives as if God were not right there with us, with all the resources that we need. Jesus is showing us who he is, and so let's pay attention. I'll just summarize this next section with the the word provision. Number three, provision. And we started our time thinking about the, the Exodus as a framework because it's Really important, not just for this passage, but really important to understand the gospel and the flow of, of Scripture, right? That this theme of deliverance from slavery into freedom to worship God in holiness is kind of the story of the Bible. It's the story of the gospel. And so here we have Jesus in a multitude, in a desolate place, wilderness-like place. And like Moses, there's this overwhelming need, over, overwhelming 
number of people. So Moses would sit the crowds down in numbers of 50 and 100 to deal with them, to judge them. And Jesus here instructs the disciples to do the same. Uh, Verse 14, pick it up there. For there were about 5,000 men, and he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so and had them all sit down. I want to just highlight the obedience of the disciples there. Just, Just note that. They're having people sit down, but they don't know why. They don't know what's going to happen. Um, So their obedience is preceding their understanding. I just think that's significant. Um, They they just know what Jesus told them to do, but they don't know exactly how it's going to turn out. I think so much of our life, um, so much of the Christian life is lived in this space. Obeying in faith when you don't know all that God is doing. There's a lot of things that are going on and you don't know how they're going to turn out and yet you're seeking to put one foot in the, in the front of the other in faithful obedience without a perfect understanding of the future. Just trusting that God is good and that he does good, as the psalmist says. He knows what he's doing. So at this point, more than just knowing all the answers, it's more important that they're trusting Jesus. And then in that context, it happens. Everyone's sitting down. Everyone's looking at Jesus. And we read verse 16, And taking the five loaves, And the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. If you just read that verse apart from its context, it sounds a lot like the Lord's Supper. It's going to, those verbs are going to be repeated in the Last Supper. They're going to be repeated at the the supper that happens in Emmaus, after the road to Emmaus um, in Luke 24. Each time you see that, there's an emphasis on revelation of Jesus' identity and mission. Revelation of his identity and mission. And we've been singing this morning about another feast that these things uh, preview, a feast in heaven, a messianic banquet, where we would come together and feast forever and be totally satisfied in the Lord Jesus and in God's love for us in him. In this moment, Jesus looks to heaven and asks a blessing. I love, again, the picture of his dependence. He's continually modeling for us. He looks to heaven and says a blessing over the food, something like this uh, Jewish uh, table prayer, likely, blessed art thou, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. Jesus was dependent on the grace and provision of his Father. And then he breaks the bread and passes it out to, to the disciples to give to the people. I wish I knew exactly how this miracle worked. Augustine believed that the food was multiplied in Jesus' hands, and as he broke it, and he passed it out, the bread and the fish, to the disciples. Calvin argued that that it grew in the disciples' hands, or or in their baskets, as they passed it out to the crowd. Uh, The the, the verb for, for breaking the bread is is translated literally something like he continued to break or he broke it over and over again, suggesting that Jesus is multiplying in his hands this this provision and then passing it out. So we can't be exactly sure, but we can know that if we were there, you would be incredibly amazed at this. This is a public, shocking miracle. The The laws of creation of mass state that matter cannot be created or destroyed. Here, 
uh, Jesus creating matter. So that's usually true, except when it isn't. When, when I was young, my, so not even that young, my grandmother was talking to me about this story. My grandmother was not a believer. And she told me the meaning of this parable is that Jesus is teaching us to share. Jesus wants his disciples to share what they have. So the boy comes and he shares his meal, and then everyone just follows suit and they share what they kind of already have, and that's the lesson. But of course, there's questions that the text raises about that. If uh, Not just the, that you're averse and allergic to supernatural, but if, if everyone already had food, why are the disciples needing to send them away? Why would Jesus continually be bringing them food and, and that, that verb used? And then what about all these leftovers? Jesus seems to create a whole lot of matter here. And it also seems to be very tasty and enjoyable. Verse 17, and they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up 12 baskets of broken pieces. In the wilderness, there was manna, there was quail, and there was a consistent grumbling. But here Jesus shows himself to be the new and better Moses who provides bread that satisfies. Moses is about to show up. We're about to go on a mountain and meet Moses. He's going to be here in a few verses. Bread is symbolic of of life. And Jesus means to point them to the true life that only comes through him. Again, John 6, Jesus said to them in the context of this miracle, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. John 6, 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. So the provision that Jesus offers is more than just full stomachs. He's come to atone for the sins of all of his people. He's come to lead a great, the great exodus. To bring a people out of slavery to sin dying for their sins. But like this bread, his body would be broken for them, that we would be made whole. His blood poured out that we would be made righteous because we are bankrupt before God in our own righteousness because of our sin. And so, friend, until you're clear about your own inability to save yourself, You'll never be able to taste and see that the Lord Jesus is good until you understand you cannot save yourself. Like the disciples, you will try to find human solutions to your soul's deepest problem. Maybe it's comparing yourself to others. Maybe it's thinking about the good works you've done in your life. But friend, you need to understand the purpose of this gospel is for you to know the only solution to your plight before a holy God is Jesus Christ. So I want to call you to turn away from walking in your own power, walking in your own strength, walking in your own rebellion and pride, and to call you to put your faith in the one who died for you and rose from the grave. Because you will never, ever be satisfied in this life apart from Jesus. He satisfies. We see that here in this passage. In him you'll find joy and life and purpose and acceptance and love that is unmerited and unconditional. If you would recognize your need, call out to Jesus in faith, He would save you and care for you 
and never leave you or forsake you. Come to Jesus. If you're here and you're a Christian, I think there's so much we can get from this passage and we won't, we won't spend um, two more hours on it, thinking about it. But in some ways, don't you see that it's like a parable for, for, for ministry and life? It just, so much of life is, is here. Go back to that command. Some might call it a test there in verse 13. You give them something to eat. Maybe you're a dad here and you're thinking about your family, discipling your family, or a mom thinking about your children, or, or you're thinking about the, the folks you're discipling and, and seeking to care for, they would grow in Christ, someone you're sharing the gospel with, and you hear that, Jesus saying to you, give them something to eat, and you just know, I got nothing. Friends, this is a, a preview into me, my pre-sermon uh, mental uh, conversation every week. Jesus saying, give them something to eat, and I got nothing. I got these notes, but it's... Hot garbage apart from you coming to work, Lord Jesus. So you have to come and feed them. And they do. Like the, the whole, the, what happens here is the disciples, you walk up and see, they're feeding people. They're doing it. They did what Jesus said they would do, even though they had no idea how they could do it or where they were going to, where things were going to go, how it would come from their own strength. Jesus does not need them to feed the people. He could have snapped his fingers. He could have caused it to rain from heaven like, like happened in the Exodus. But he chooses to involve his disciples. He chooses to involve us in his work. And that should cause us to scratch our heads in wonder. And as a result, we get a close-up view of his power and grace. What a joy. I don't think anything's changed. Today, just get a picture in your mind. Jesus does the miracle. He gives the food to them. They distribute it. And then they just walk back to him over and over with empty hands. Empty hands back to Jesus. Empty hands back to him. Lord, if you've got to fill these hands, if I'm going to give anything away, it's going to have to come from you. Every time they reach out those empty hands, Jesus fills them with more and more and more. And they pass out the provision. They know this is not my power. This is not my provision. I got this from this guy. He gets the glory. Praise Him. They glorify Jesus because they're ministering in His power, not theirs. Peter describes it this way. For those of you who serve, 1 Peter 4.11, you serve by the strength that God supplies in order that everything in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. So, beloved, we're only effective in life and ministry because Jesus has given us everything we need. Everything we need to minister, to obey Him, to follow Him. He has given us those things. We have nothing to give that we have not received from Jesus Christ. You cannot forgive that person that has hurt you so bad, so badly, apart from understanding the true forgiveness you've received from Jesus Christ. The unmerited favor that you have been granted because of the gospel. How are you going to be patient as a parent or as a friend apart from understanding and, and thinking about the patience that God has shown you? How are you going to give the word to someone apart from understanding how the word impacted you and has saved you and how, how you've grown in your own understanding of the word? How are you going to not give up on that friend apart from knowing God's persevering grace in your life that he is never and is never giving up. Jesus gives us all that we need and he gives us more than we need. Notice those 12 basketfuls of leftovers. There's a, there's a theme here over and over that Luke is laying down of Jesus being the fulfillment. The fulfillment, the true best 
right Israelite. The true Israelite. And he is, he is, he is calling the, 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 the new Israel to himself. I just think there's an interesting pattern here. I'm thinking about this. I don't want to build a theology about this, but the number 12 has been showing up a lot, hasn't it, in our study of Luke's gospel? Jairus' daughter was, was 12 years old. The, the woman with an issue of blood was suffering for 12 years. Jesus then sent out the 12 apostles, and here there's 12 leftovers from the miracle here, just reminding us of the fulfillment of, those, the, of, of Israel, those 12 tribes in Jesus Christ in the wilderness. Jesus is the true Israel. He's constituting a new Israel. Those who by faith in him would be children of Abraham. So there's this theme of abundance and fulfillment. Each apostle, each disciple gets their own basket. They were hungry too. So, so again, what an object lesson for them as they're carrying this heavy basket being reminded of their own maybe ungrateful attitude, wondering, was Jesus going to provide for me? I want uh, some, some bread and fish. Now I've got a basket. We're never going to doubt him again. I want, to, I want to think like that. He's our great provider. So we need to be cautious, beloved, of spiritual amnesia. Forgetting God's great provision for us in Christ in our own lives. So I want to encourage you, savor the provision of the Lord. Savor what it means to be a Christian. Savor Jesus Christ. Remember the ways in which he has provided for you in your deepest need. And so the next time the need arises, remember that he is good and does good. Augustine put it well when he prayed, Lord, command what you will and grant what you command. Command what you will and grant, give what you command, Lord. We can trust that Jesus will provide all that we need and more. Remember the faithfulness of Jesus. Remember that the Lord is my shepherd and I shall not want. Psalm 23.1. One author put it this way, Yesterday God helped me, today he'll do the same. How long will this continue? Forever. Praise his name. Remember, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you. Matthew 6.33 Remember that God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things and at all times, you may abound in every good work. 2 Corinthians 9.8 Remember that God fed Israel with manna precisely to teach him that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord, Deuteronomy 8.3. Consider Isaiah's question that we used at the, at the beginning of the service. Consider it carefully. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Come to Jesus, the bread of life, the river of living water that never runs dry, the only true satisfaction for your soul, for my soul. You won't find it in money or sex or food, or Instagram. The right job, the right reputation, you will only find this satisfaction, what you were made for in Jesus Christ. And so Luke tells us, it all comes back to Herod's question and how we answer it. Who is this? Who is Jesus? Let's pray.
Lord, thank you for showing yourself to us. And Lord, we pray that you would do much more with this meager offering in the life of your people. We pray that you would bless your word and that it would stay with us. Lord, that as we, as we encounter decisions, as we encounter big and small choices that we make, as we encounter challenges in our relationships and challenges to love as you've loved us, Lord, we pray this would come into our minds. And by the Spirit, we would come back to you with empty hands, seeing you have provided perfectly, fully in us. You have supplied all of our needs. You have not left us wanting. And so we can continually come back to you, our our reservoir that never runs dry. And we pray that that would just make us different people. The way that we talk to each other, the way that we love each other. Oh Lord, make us people that believe this and see this and seeking to bless others in the provision that we have been so richly blessed in in Christ. Even now as we sing, we pray we would sing as those who have been so richly provided for. We thank you and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.